questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. History encompasses at least three different ways of accessing the past. It can be remembered or recovered, or even invented. What in the world was happening around 1850? Tonight's episode is a continuation of what we started back in February, before the fear of coronavirus took over the world. Our regular subjects took a backseat, and my focus turned into the pandemic. But I'm sure many of you are exhausted of that, and are ready to move on. I know I am. So we are now transitioning back to our regular subjects. Many of you wrote to me saying you wanted more on the topic of our hidden history. I really enjoyed Michelle Gibson's first appearance. A few days ago, a very tough guest and friend, David Weiss, posted a photograph on Facebook, which showed an excavation site which unearthed railroad tracks under mud. He said, quote, All of our history are lies. They didn't build the major railroads. They excavated them. They didn't build buildings in the 1800s. They reconstructed them. Our so-called rulers are lying about our history, and they are lying about our future. They have convinced you not to trust your God-given senses and to instead believe the nonsense they tell you. They have convinced you to believe you are not qualified to think, and they need to think for you. They have convinced you that their quote-unquote education system is how you get smart and become successful, when in fact, it's not education, but rather a regurgitation system of their lies. The big question is, when are you going to start thinking and figuring out what is going on? Just in case you haven't realized yet, there is no time left. 2020 is the pivot point in our slavery. Unquote. And immediately after, another listener contacted me. His name is also David. David Michael Loikers. Sorry if I butchered your last name. This David wrote with the following, quote, Listening to Michelle Gibson, I got a chill. The year 1851 is very strange. I talked with the late Eustace Mullins, and he told me that all the state constitutions were rewritten that year, but he had never found the reason why. I checked Ohio, and sure enough, the original constitution of 1802 was replaced in 1851. Why? I don't buy the published excuses, unquote. And another listener, Todd Bryant, said this, quote, That year further confirms parallels of sudden, quote-unquote, inspirations in weapons development to me over the 19th century. Not to sound off-topic, but the same type of incrementalism seen then in the advancement of weapons during those decades closely mimics what we see today only in computer and electronic tech Either there was a Tesla-type prodigy around in every field of science, everywhere, always, or, more likely, the seeding of patent-type knowledge spread around U.S. industry, and no one takes credit for the whole process. It appears in sections overseen by one inventor and industrialist. The Civil War was a revealing of how things quote-unquote were supposed to be, not smaller, redundant, southern-style economies, unquote. Thanks, Todd. And by the way, Sam Colt created the 1851 revolver in 1851, which was adopted by the U.S. military as its standard issue sidearm. Well, David and Tim, like you, I'm intrigued. I want to know more. Get ready. We'll dig deeper tonight. You are listening to Veritas. If this is your first time, welcome home. To listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, Join the Veritas family and click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. We are now accepting Bitcoin, Litecoin, and Ethereum. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for Focused Life Force Energy, MMS, CBD Pure Hemp Oil, Divinia Water, Pure Organic Sulfur flash drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas seasons, and other great products. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. And if you're listening on YouTube, like, 
subscribe, and share it. And click the bell to be notified when new interviews are available. And now, here's your host, Mel Fabregas. And to continue what we started, Michelle Gibson is back. I won't read her bio to save time, but to those of you who didn't listen to our first interview, I highly suggest that you do. Michelle's website is piercingtheveilofillusion.com. Michelle joins us from Sedona, Arizona. Hello, Michelle, and welcome back. How are you? Hello, Mel. I'm doing really well, thanks. Thank you so much for again accepting another invitation. As you can see from some of the letters I've received, people are still intrigued. We had the coronavirus. We have to put a lot of things into ice for a while, but I'm glad that we're moving past that and we're getting back to normal. But the title of the show, What in the World Was Happening Around 1850? We discussed this a bit in our previous interview, but this year, there's so much behind it. Why don't you start with some of your latest findings? Oh, wow. The first thing that comes to mind is I'm working on a series on the correlation of mining and mines on an alignment. And I'm on part four. It will be the last part. I'm about halfway through writing it. And I have a summary I'm going to put at the end. It's not quite ready yet, or I would have probably gone more into it with my talking points for this. But I do want to say that the 1850s are prominent in the whole mining scenario, and there's a whole lot more. I mean, it's a huge topic. And I'm glad you forward me the information that David shared about the 1851 coming up with state constitutions because it made it easy to put my talking points together for this interview because it's a date that comes up frequently. So my, my res- By the way, if you, you, you probably know the name Eustace Mullins, one of the greatest researchers, at least to me, in the 20th century. And I have to say, if Eustace Mullins wonders why, and he could never find an answer, that tells you that there's something hidden here, Michelle. Definitely hidden, uh, with good reason. We were never supposed to figure it out. So I would like to start with this particular subject matter with why I think 1851 was the official start of the New World Order timeline. And I believe that was the Crystal Palace exhibition in London in 1851. Also known as the Great Exhibition of the Works of Industry of All Nations, it was the first in a series of World's Fairs, exhibitions of culture and industry that became popular in the 19th century. And I believe the World Fairs in the next hundred years were a showcase of the original technology. And it was just something that wasn't as advertised. And I'll go into that here in just a moment. I want to recap some of the things I brought out in my first interview with you. Based on my research and everything I found, I believe that there was a hostile takeover of the planet after a deliberately caused cataclysm that resulted in a worldwide flood of mud which wiped out the original civilization. There was an almost two-year period of extremely cold, enduring weather in Ireland between 1740 and 1741. The cause is not known, and this information is in the historical record, but is not common knowledge. Hundreds of thousands of people in Ireland died in the cold snap, which was about a fifth of the population at that time. And to this day, it is the longest period of extreme cold weather in modern European history, and it led to food riots, famine, epidemics, and death. And I believe in another part of this interview, I'll be talking more about what I believe the causal event was, which I think was a Philadelphia experiment, but I will have a place where I can bring that in a little bit later on. So the question I asked is, what if the explanation involves a disruption in the fabric of space-time, which would have been the Philadelphia experiment? What if it took the beings involved in the cataclysm and takeover around 100 years to dig the original infrastructure out of the mud flow? What if the timeline we have been taught in school actually starts in the mid-1800s with a new false historical narrative superimposed onto this infrastructure, one which brought cruelty, great suffering, degradation, and division to humanity? What if the original order of society was turned upside down and we have been the subjects of a vast human and social engineering project, not for our best interest, but that of other beings? What if these exhibitions, expositions, and world fairs starting in 1851 were showcasing 
the technology and architectural wonders of the original civilization before being hidden away or forever destroyed, which is pretty much what happened to the vast majority of buildings that were said to have been built as temporary buildings for world world fairs. And they, they are absolutely mind boggling and permanent looking and massive. By the way, Chicago too, the world fair to Chicago, they also had a big fire. Mm-hmm. 1893. Fires at, at most of them. So there's something else going on there. Very few of the original buildings were left. So what we're told is that the purpose of the first great exhibition in 1851 was to be making clear to the world Britain's role as industrial leader, while at the same time it provided a platform on which other countries from around the world could display their achievements. The Crystal Palace covered 19 acres with 100,000 exhibits. It was said to have displayed Britain's wealth as a workshop banker and trader of the world. We're told that it took only nine months to develop it from plans and organization to the grand opening with Queen Victoria, and that it was organized by a British civil servant named Sir Henry Cole and Prince Albert, Queen Victoria's husband. It was also said to be a temporary structure, like I just said. And if you look at a picture of the Crystal Palace, it's massive. Beyond massive. I saw a reference to it somewhere that is three times the size of St. Paul's Cathedral in London, and St. Paul's Cathedral's massive, and it looks like the Washington Capitol. And it was said to have been designed by a gardener and greenhouse builder named Sir Joseph Paxton. And he was also said to have been commissioned by Baron Meyer Rothschild in 1850 to design the Mentmore Towers in Buckinghamshire one of the greatest country houses built during the Victorian era. And again, just beautiful architecture. The Crystal Palace was described as a massive glass house that was 1,848 feet or 563 meters long by 554 feet and 138 meters wide and constructed from cast iron frame components and glass. Between May 1st and October 15th of 1851, Six million people were said to visit the exhibition, including famous people like Charles Darwin, Samuel Colt, who you just mentioned, Charlotte Bronte, Charles Dickens, and Alfred Lord Tennyson. The proceeds generated by the Great Exhibition of 1851 were then said to be used to found the Victoria and Albert Museum in 1852, and the Science Museum in 1857, and the Natural History Museum in London in 1881. You know, and it can just just incredible architecture, stone masonry. And the fate of the Crystal Palace, we're told that it was moved and re-erected in 1854 to Sydenham Hill in South London and was later destroyed by fire in 1936. You know, and again, if you look at a picture of it, it's like, how did they manage to move a building like that? You know, again, this is all, also all what we're told. We are told that it was moved. We don't know if we're it was told- moved, right? Right, exactly. Just like so many obelisks around the world, and even in the United States. But I can see maybe, maybe uh, in land, you can move some of that. I don't know how, but it's more plausible than moving them in ships to the United States, because we have obelisks all over the place here, too, which seem almost right. impossible to have been moved in in ships back then. Right, and and they insist on telling us that the Cleopatra's needles in London, Paris, and New York were moved right. by, by boat. <laughs> And and we don't question it, right? You know, and they're they're over two hundred tons each. And there's just a story that we're told about it. And you know, because this information's been removed from our awareness, is it harder to believe it was moved by ship or that it was already there? You know, and that's that's what this whole research is all about. Is there's more evidence that there's an existing civilization than what we're taught about in school. I mean, it just, it does not add up. And that's what my work is uncovering. Let's dissect this more. The obelisks. What do you think the purpose of that was? Some people say they may have been some grounding, grounding devices. Some say that there may be some, some antenna around the world. What do you think the purpose was? I, I think everything that was built, every building, every obelisk, every standing stone, every stone circle, um, all rail systems, star forts, everything was connected to the planetary grid system. Everything was in balance. 
between heaven and earth. And it was a very positive civilization because, and unified civilization, because I can't conceive of this type of sophisticated instrument being created by, by countries at war with each other or empires at war. It was like they were all working together. And I would even say in unity consciousness, I think it was a very full expression of human potential in physical form, which I believe is our reason for being here, is experiencing creation as a higher being. <laughs> Let's talk about the the, <laughs> the railroad tracks for a moment. I remember when sure. I saw the picture for the first time the other day when David shared it with me, I actually showed it to my daughter, a 13-year-old daughter, and I said, what do you see here? And she says, I see some railroad tracks. I see people excavating. And then I tried to explain what the possibilities could be. And obviously, you're training school. It's very difficult for you to get what I was trying to convey to her. Now, what if there was a mud flood and this was buried and this was used before we were even told that railroads were established in the United States? And that's when she tuned me out. She's like, okay, I, 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 that's, that's beyond me. But what do you think? Do you think that we had a network of railroad tracks in the United States before the Spaniards and, and the uh, British came along? Absolutely, 100%. No question in my mind. And it's not just railroads. It's streetcars. It's subways. Buildings. They were already here. So the question is, because somebody sent me the other day a map of all the Native American tribes all over the United States, you know, you see it all over the Seminoles in Florida and the Navajos here and the Yavapais in Arizona, all of them. So if that's the case, who were these people? Were they the Native Americans or is this somebody else who was coexisting and cohabitating with the Native Americans? I would say the latter. I, I There was this whole sophisticated civilization. We have been given... I'm not going to use the word stories, but maybe stereotypes of who was in different places. And we've been socially engineered, like I said at the beginning of this piece about exhibitions. It's been a vast human and social engineering project. I talk about this being the Moorish civilization and that it was empires within empire. So there were empires like the Washington Empire and the Tartarian Empire and the Barbarian Empire and others that, again, existed, coexisted peacefully with each other. And another piece that goes along with that is my belief that the so-called lost tribes of Israel weren't lost. They were suppressed and that everything that was existing here was used as a template for the new world order to come in and hijack for their own purposes to create the narrative that we have now. So I believe that the the children of Israel were the original humans and we've been taught fragments of information. And that's not to say that, you know, I'm not even talking about holy books at this point, I believe they're pre-existing, but the narrative that we're in the stories that we have been taught about who we are, are are kind of twisted from what the original purpose was, which was to reconnect with higher self and to to live in harmony and balance and abundance. And that was well known to the original inhabitants. We weren't struggling with who we were, who we are, who are we, where are we from, how did we get here, how did life develop? We were there, and we were very big people. <laughs> we were giants, and so I think there's truth mixed in with, with untruth to hide this original civilization. And, and that also goes, speaks to the, the piece about, you know, the, the people that we think were here w would have been connected to the tribes of Israel. But I think everybody was existing in harmony. I, I hope that makes sense. Oh, it does make sense. And I've discussed the triptychs many, many years ago with the architectural designs that we see around the world, the certain pyramids, and you see the three doors everywhere. It's almost like they're the same type of design. And if that's the case, that as you say, you call it unity consciousness, 
I think that that was the case. Maybe, and one thing that's really interesting, there's usually not a language, no, nothing written, unless you talk about the clay tablets that Zachariah Sitchin talks about. But aside from that, you don't see a language. Could it be that we did not use verbal language to communicate years ago? My initial thought when you asked the question is that I think we were definitely able to communicate telepathically. One of the pieces that I'm going to bring out is in the languages of Hebrew, Arabic, probably Tibetan, probably Chinese. There are codes in those languages, uh, codes of life. So everything I'm going to try to put together why I think that that chemistry and language, uh, chemical elements, atomic numbers, uh, all of these things were used in creation. I mean, like we can't live without the chemical elements in our bodies that are keeping us going without our attention. So I'm, I think all of these things are are really deeply connected, and and that's one of the things about the the mining and minerals piece that um, I'm going to put together in completion. Hopefully by the end of the week, I'll have it all completed. There's three parts available right now on my website to look at. And the fourth piece, I'm going to finish up the alignment and I'm going to throw in what I think is going on. But we weren't ignorant of, of who we are and where we are in the universe and what's really here and relationships with other universes. You know, th this was definitely a hostile takeover by malevolent beings. Let's keep let's keep peeling this onion. What I said at the beginning, at the very beginning, history encompasses at least three different ways of accessing the past. It can be remembered or recovered or even invented. I think it's more the latter. And as they say, the history is written by the winners. In this case, I don't even know that I want to call them the winners. I want to call them the usurpers. When we think about Christopher Columbus coming coming to America in 1492 and coming here through Florida and the Caribbean, and then the British came along and the French and the rest of them and the Danish, I want to know, is there somebody out there who has our true history that when they came here, they found these buildings erected already in, in, in perhaps technology that they didn't even have anywhere else. Do you think that's plausible? Absolutely. I would start my search in the Vatican Library if I could get in there, but <laughs> other places as well. And a lot of li libraries have been burned. A lot of cities have been burned. A lot but, of cities were burned in the 1850s. <laughs> even, the devout, even the devout Catholics, and I know many of them who are Opus Dei, which is a very conservative sect of the Catholic Church. When I tell them, you realize that the Pope that you know is only one. You have the Great Pope and you have the Black Pope. And of course, they label me, oh, you're just a conspiracy theorist. And do you know that all these Egyptian artifacts and hieroglyphs inside of the Vatican have a reason why, and they don't even want to hear what I'm about to say, what, you know, what I would tell them. What do you know about that connection, the Egypt and the Vatican? Uh, just that my understanding, this is how I came into all of this knowledge. I had always had a fascination with megaliths. And then as I became aware of grid lines and started doing my own research, I had a person who was a Moor come into my life, a Moorish American. I don't think I would have ever gotten the piece about the Moors without him in my life for four years and, and doing some traveling with him and just understanding because every time I unintentionally said something insensitive, um, I would get a video about a Moorish teaching from, uh, you know, Moorish, Moorish master teachers And I started to get an education about the Moors that most people don't receive, which is basically they're alive and well. Uh, the ancient ones are still living today and don't refer to a people that lived a long time ago. And they go back to Mu or Lemuria. So there, I believe it was a continuous civilization from Lemuria through Atlantis on up until the relatively present day, whenever this took place. It was one continuous civilization. The architecture around the world is the same. And is this why we see a lot of 
architecture being built on top of things. For example, uh, let me give you the example of Granada. And I think I mentioned this during our last interview. When I go to Granada and Southern Spain and even Morocco, you see architecture there that you think this is from another world, especially the Alhambra Palace. But obviously the Spaniards, after the more conquest ended, they kind of switched things around and you see another portion of the castle being built by the Spanish, which has absolutely no comparison to what the Moors did. Are we referring to the same Moors that created the Alhambra Palace and had that region of the world for about 700 years? Are we talking about the same people or are they different? It's the same people. Same people. And the, the, the Spain is the only place that they were even re- given credit for being and developing the civilization there. So, so they were acknowledged within this historical record that we've been taught, but, but the Moorish civilization was worldwide. So yes, it's the same people. So what struck me was when I was there, and I mentioned this all the time, I saw churches, synagogues, and uh, what's the word? I can't can I remember. A moths all together, one right next to each other. And I asked the guide, really? So people during Moorish time, they were living in harmony? And she told me, yes, that's the way it used to be. But of course, then the Spaniards came along, took it over, and you know they frown upon anything else that's not the Catholic Church. What do you think happened? What, what happened to the Moors that they lost that? If they had the technology and they had all that wisdom that we can see around, what, why did they lose? I think it was the mud flood. The mud flood. I think the, the mud flood wiped the surface population for the most part out. There may have been a few places here and there that didn't get affected by it, but I think it wiped out a lot of places and people. But the mud flood and came I, later. This is we're talking about in the 1480s or 1490s. That's what we're taught. What I'm saying, I, I, I really question that our historical narrative. I think liberties were taken when a new historical narrative was created to explain the existence of what's here. And in many cases, the explanations just don't add up at all. Okay. Okay. Yeah. All right. So, so I'm, I'm just, I'm just saying I, I, I'm, the Moors were in Spain. Yes. But I think they were in Spain for longer than later. 700 years. First of all, let me just say this. We have to remain open-minded by asking questions because the moment we start, we only start accepting statements by our government, by our teachers, by by ed- the educational system. That's when we become closed-minded, and this is why it's important to, for me to re- remove my everything I've been taught. Columbus came in 1492, discovered America, blah blah blah. If I remove that from the equation for a moment, and I know that it takes one generation for knowledge or wisdom to disappear and a new kind of information comes along. And I've talked to a lot of people who studied in the 1900s, and they say many things were different than what we're taught today. Are you saying that perhaps Columbus was a fictional character? That did not happen. They just added that into our books to confuse us from the real reality of where we come from? Not necessarily a fictional character, but with a mission very different from what we're told. So given that I have every reason to believe there was a very advanced civilization in North America, for example, Caribbean, I think it was part of a boots on the ground land grab and not what we're taught about finding a route to India. And I'm going to address that here in a little bit on a whole nother situation based on the alignments that I've tracked. I, I just want to make a few other points and then uh, give you some examples of things that I found that's noteworthy. Uh, one is that the Earth's prime meridian was moved from the Great Pyramid of Giza in 1851 to the Royal Observatory in Greenwich in London. So it happened the same year as the Crystal Palace exhibition. And then I want to talk a little bit about some naval expeditions that took place in the time frame between like the 1820s and 1840s. And I found this doing research for alignments that I found off of San Francisco and going around the world. I learned a lot by doing the work for that. 
And I was going uh, looking at the Kerguelen Islands to Matara, Sri Lanka. And I found a man named Jules Dumont d'Urville. And I looked into his life and voyages because I believe his story is important to understanding the historical narrative we've been taught. He lived during the time of the Napoleonic Wars. So Napoleon is a whole other issue because I'm finding about how the wars that we have been taught about were, were actually ways to take over countries and remove their sovereignty. And that's that's a whole other subject. But this guy, Jules de Monterville, was going down to places in like the Falkland Islands, the coast of Peru and Chile and South America, New Guinea, New Zealand, and Australia. He went there in 1822, starting in 1822. These were all supposed to be scientific research in the fields of botany and insects. And he brought back thousands of specimens to the Natural History Museum in Paris. Then he went on another expedition in 1826 for three years and went to New Zealand, Fiji, the Loyalty Islands, New Guinea, and the Solomon Islands, Carolyn Islands, and the Moluccas, which were in eastern Indonesia. And then again in 1837, he went out for the Southern Ocean and ended up in Antarctica and claimed land for France on January 21st of 1840. And if you've ever heard of Adelie land in Antarctica or the Adelie penguin, that was named after his wife, Adele. And so he ended up going back to France. And then an interesting side note is that he and his entire family were killed in the first ever rail disaster in France in May of 1842, called the Versailles rail accident in which the train's locomotive derailed, the wagons rolled, and the coal tender ended up at the front of the train and so forth. They all died and he was interred at the Montparnasse Cemetery in Paris. I just have serious questions about that, that ending of his life. Um, if that indeed happened, I just, I just wonder if it's a case of dead men tell no, tell, tell no tales because it's such a bizarre thing. And then I just want to tie that in real quick to the U.S. exploring expedition, which went to the Pacific Ocean and surrounding lands between 1838 and 1842. It was described as of major importance to the growth of science in the United States and that it involved a squadron of four ships, same idea with a scientific expedition, also known as the USXX and the Wilkes Expedition. The interesting thing about that is that they claimed land for the U.S. in Antarctica five days before the French explorer did on January 16th of 1840. And then the three voyages of the HMS Beagle started in 1820 and, and the last ended in 1843. And of particular interest to me is that the HMS Beagle in 1845 was refitted as a Coast Guard watch vessel in Essex, moored in the middle of the River Roach. And then oyster companies and traders petitioned to have it removed in 1851. And that it was renamed the South End WV Number no. Seven on May 25th of 1851, which would have been right after the Crystal Exhibition started. I just find that the, that taking place during that time to be of interest. And I just think the history of the Earth has been replaced with the history of those that took over and claimed the legacy of the original builders of civilization. And I believe all these voyages of exploration were part of how they did it. The earth and all that was in it was surveyed after the mud flood event and before the official start of the new reset timeline in 1851. That's just how I interpret all of that. Stay, stay with the mud flood for a second, because this is the area, it's almost like a catalyst to what we saw coming after. I want mm -hmm. to understand from what you've been able to gather, the mud flood. When did it happen? How did it happen? And who caused it or what? Okay. <clears throat> Hang on. So I've given the, the great frost of Ireland of 1840 and 1841 as a significant moment that I believe that the Philadelphia experiment took over or caused. Now there could have been other causes. I'm, encountering evidence of nuclear explosions, uh, nuclear 
radiation in India, in the western part of India, in Rajasthan, on throughout there and up into Pakistan. There is a lot of indicators that there was some kind of nuclear explosion there. And so I'm not ruling out other other things. This is just how I came into all of this awareness is, is through what I've talked about. So I think that's what I've been led to. Certainly it's speculative on my part, but it just, it kind of makes sense to me. Um, several years ago, I read a number of Peter Moon's books and many of his books, he talks about the Philadelphia experiment, the Montauk project, time travel experiments, and the hidden dark occult practices that have been going on here. And that was how I came to the conclusion from my research that there could have been a direct connection between the cataclysm that created the mud flood and the Philadelphia experiment. And the Philadelphia experiment took place on July 22nd, 1942, which was midway through World War II at the Philadelphia Naval Shipyard. And I've conjectured in some of my work that there was a, a time loop created between 1492 which was the year of the fall of Granada and Columbus's first voyage exactly. to 1942. And that 1717 is the midpoint year. And I started to look at what happened around the year of 1717 and just all kinds of anomalous information came up. So I, I think I'm in the ballpark. I may not have nailed it, but I, I definitely think there's something here to be found. Do you think that Peter and maybe you have come to the conclusion that because of the Philadelphia experiment, our timeline timeline changed, and what we used to think was was not. Actually, I do. And before I even came into the work that I'm doing now, I was reading Peter's books because he was the one of the few people writing about the Moors. And he said we were knocked off our original timeline. And I'm I'm reading that. And I'm going what? And it was probably within three or four years that I started my own research, but I, I had read all of these people's work that were kind of on similar um, paths and, and Peter's work kind of went into a lot into uh, timeline, uh, time travel research. And, you know, I definitely think there's something with that. And he also talks a lot about, um, hang on just a sec. He talks about a lot of different things, but he definitely gets into time travel. And I find it very interesting. He talks a lot about black magic. That's what I wanted to go into, which is very disturbing. But unfortunately, it's been a very real problem for humanity is the use of black magic. When you say that <clears throat> some, something took over, I call it the usurpers instead of the mm -hmm. conquerors. Somebody took over or some different, I hate to even call it humans. Some people call them. The grays, I hate they're to even say humans. that. They're not, I, 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 they're not human. That's what we've been told, right? Right. Did they come from outside of this? I know we have people who think that the Earth is flat, others who do not. So uh, do they come outside of this plane or this planet? I believe they did. And I believe that a rip in the fabric of space-time was created with, let's, I'll just go with my, my theory that it was created with the, Philadelphia experiment with the ship going somewhere else rather than just turning invisible. It ended up in that time and space in Ireland. And part of what backs that up, and again, it's certainly all circumstantial, is that Meyer Rothschild was born in Germany right after that, like just a few years later. And then Adam Weishaupt was born in Bavaria. And he founded the Bavarian Order of the Illuminati. Mm -hmm. You know, so we've got two individuals right there that showed up on the scene shortly after that took place. So I think it allowed these beings to come in and incarnate in human form. So they look human, but they're not. And they, they don't like us <laughs> whatever, whatsoever. It wasn't Ma Meyer Rothschild, the one who obviously he, they changed the last name. It was something else. But they, he actually trained his offspring, his children, to go to different parts of the world to, to create what we now call the central banks. But he, mm -hmm. some went to Asia, some went to Europe, some went to the Americas eventually. Wasn't that Mayor Rothschild who actually spread his 
children to 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 create the, the the empire of money. Right. He founded the House of Rothschild and uh, and proceeded to take over financial systems around the world. And that's and, all you need. If you control the world's money supply, you control the people. Right. So that's all in there. Um, I it, it really goes very deep. And I'm going to talk about that some in following the money and the influence. So this is kind of what I what I how I see it is that if you look in the world of business, there are two kinds of takeover bids, and one is a friendly takeover when the board of from both companies, the target and the acquirer, negotiate and approve the bid. And then there's the hostile takeover bid, which occurs when acquiring company seeks to acquire another company, the target company, but the board of directors from the tar- target company have no desire to be acquired or merged with another company. So there's two ways to get target company in the hostile takeover. And one is a tender offer to purchase shares at a premium to market price or the proxy offer persuading shareholders of the target company to vote out the existing management. So on one side, we have Team Light, who, along with the ancient advanced civilization, were co-creating the fullest expression of human potential there ever was on Earth. By the way, I don't mean to interrupt you. Somebody Mm -hmm. is on the line. Can you hear it? Hello. Can can you hear me? Yep. Somebody's on the line. I've never had this before, but I can hear. I can hear it. Can you hear? There's. It's almost like a, it, I can hear the the ambient noise. It just mm-hmm. happened. But anyway, please proceed. Okay. Maybe they'll learn something from us. <laughs> then we have Team Dark on the other side, comprised of fallen angels, archons, demons, and other beings with a negative agenda towards humanity including negative extraterrestrial races, all who have been interfering here on Earth. Team Dark was jealous of humanity, greedy, and hungry for power, and they wanted to rule over it all, take the wealth for themselves, and control the destiny of humanity for their own benefit. But the problem is, in a free will zone like Earth, the human beings who live here have to give their consent to choose whether to follow the light or the dark. And the way that I see it, the negative beings wanted to set up a new god as lord of the world, which we would know as Lucifer and wanted a proxy vote for their hostile takeover and persuade enough of humanity to voluntarily accept, voluntarily accept Lucifer over the creator of the universe. However, the only way they can accomplish this acceptance is by outright lies, deception, and duplicity because if people knew the true agenda of these controllers, the majority of humanity would never, ever accept this. So I think they developed this complicated plan to knock humanity off the positive Moorish timeline of higher consciousness in an interdimensional war in order to, to control humanity using humans as their tools against the creator and creation. And I think that's where we are right now. And I think that's what's been going on. Can you hear what's going on behind the scenes? I'm going to have to hang up and call you back. Okay. Sure. All right. Sorry about that, Michelle. I wanted to make sure that uh, we got a better line now and I don't hear the ambient noise anymore. Please proceed. Okay. So, Anyway, I think we were talking about um, what I think, who I think is behind this, and I think they're negative beings with an anti-human agenda that are jealous of humanity. And uh, they saw an opportunity, and the only way they could do it because they're not allowed to touch us as sovereign beings was by creating the whole mud flood scenario and then digging everything out and restarting civilization on the, based on what they had dug out at the time. But how do you think this mud flood was created? Because the mud flood is evident in Europe, is evident in the United States. So I'm just trying to understand, I'm not a meteorologist, but I'm trying to think how can mud be dispersed in such a vast way all over the world? So one possibility, Mel, is uh, maybe it created what I've been talking about, created a a pole shift of some kind or earth wobble, uh, maybe earthquakes because earthquakes cause liquefaction. There's footage of it today. If you look up, you know, earthquakes and liquefaction, you can find footage of it. So when whatever took place, it could have knocked the earth out of out of its 
um, spinning or axis or some something. It, what you just said about the liquefaction is exactly what Chan Thomas discusses in the Adam and Eve story. That's what comes to mind when you ask about what could have caused all of that mud. And then there was the extreme cold weather. So that could have also had some something to do with it. Do you think there are parts of the world, I know the Yonaguni Islands in Japan, some people say that that is a natural occurrence, what you see under on the uh, the water there. But, you know, uh, Graham Hancock and his wife have skydived, I mean, skydived, uh, scuba dived, and they have footage. And it's, to me, looking at these straight lines and, you know, goes from here, immediately goes to the right, it doesn't seem like a natural rock formation. It's almost like it was man-made. Could it be that a certain time in our past, we had areas of the world that were underwater and other areas that are now underwater were not? And this is probably what caused the mud flood? Very possibly. I mean, absolutely, there are places underwater that were above ground. And I'm sure the reverse is true as well. And Yonaguni, if you look at it, you know, invite anybody just to Google Yonaguni, and it's not natural. I mean, you have clear temples, straight lines, uh, gutters, you know, rocks with gutters in them, steps, sculptures. You know, it's it's an un underwater city. Right. And there's more, more than one out there. Um, there's ruins underwater off the coast of Cuba. Right. Maybe Bimini Road. Bimini uh, and there are other places in the Gulf of Mexico and the Indian Ocean. Um, again, that's all the kind of information that gets suppressed, you know, along with everything else we talk about. Um, What about Northern you know, California and even the Grand Canyon? I mean, Northern California, I've seen maps where Northern California was completely underwater. The Grand Canyon was underwater. And you can look at it now. There must have been some kind of interaction with the rock, the soil and water in the past. And there's also an Egyptian connection to the Grand Canyon as right. well. G.E. Kincaid, you know that name. I do. For the the Phoenix Gazette. Correct. Finds the cave with all of these things inside at the Grand Canyon. And, and then the story gets squashed by the Smithsonian. Never happened. Why can't people like you and I and thousands of people who listen, why can't we demand that we get access to that area? Why? Because right now I hear that they have it completely blocked, even to the U.S. Forest Service, state and federal. It's all closed to even the government. Yeah. You know, and that's a really good point. It's been that way for a long time. But especially in my mining series, there are massive mines of all kinds of metals and things in out-of-the-way places, especially up north, huge, huge mines that nobody knows about, you know, all this stuff is going on all around us, but because nobody knows that there's even anything to it. I mean, I see what are earthworks with the topsoil peeled off, you know, a Flagstaff just outside of Flagstaff. I was driving to get a close look at the San Francisco peaks and I passed by this energy operation where they're taking the topsoil off of, of a place. And that, That scenario is repeated everywhere. I mean, there's something of energy value in these earthworks that's being exploited by the energy industry. And I'm not saying everybody that's in the industry knows, but somebody knows. Well, even Sedona, where you are. I mean, that the red rocks there. Every guide, at least what they've told me, is that when you have the oxygen gets in contact with that type of, of mineral— It becomes red. So does that mean that Sedona was underwater before? I've heard that. Um, I do think there's a lot more to the story. Um, living here, especially, I see ancient infrastructure all around me. And um, because I've been studying this subject for a while, I can, you know, I'll, I'll see something off in the bushes, like some kind of, I'm not going to say construction work, but digging going on off, you know, some side road and a lot of natural gas pipes. And I think that's all connected as well. Uh, while we're on, I'm on this particular page, I'm going to kind of bring it back to the 1850s for a moment. Sure. And this is uh, a post called following the money 
and influence part three, a look behind the curtain into the origins of corporations and companies. So this is where I started off with America's first oil refinery for making lamp oil was in Pittsburgh in 1854. And then petroleum industry in the United States began in earnest in 1859 when Edwin Drake found oil on a piece of leased land near Titusville, Pennsylvania, in what is now called Oil Creek State Park. And it's called the birthplace of the oil industry. So that was in Pittsburgh, or, or not, not Pittsburgh, but um, Titusville. And there was a big oil boom there for a while. 1839, John D. Rockefeller Sr. was born in the United States, and he was the progenitor of the wealthy Rockefeller family and considered to be the wealthiest American of all time. And he and Henry Flagler, uh, an industrialist and developer in Florida, founded the Standard Oil Company in 1870, which was an American oil-producing, transporting, refining, and marketing company, and it was a monopoly which exists when a specific person or enterprise is the only supplier of a particular commodity. In 1911, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that Standard Oil was an illegal monopoly, ending its history as one of the world's first largest and largest multinational corporations. And I'm not going to kind of go into a whole lot about Standard Oil, but if you know anything, Mel, um, Standard Oil is still alive and well. Well, absolutely. This is one of the pillars of all of this. And so I, I figured somebody left me a comment that Sony is Standard Oil of New York. And there's other things as well. St standard Holdings um, are involved with the Standard Hotels and other things. And that's a whole other subject that I don't. Now explain that. Sony, as far as I know, Sony is a Japanese electronics manufacturer. Somebody, uh, it's an acronym for Standard Oil of New York. Okay. Also, uh, let's see. One of the things I talk about in it, I go into it in depth in this particular blog post. Um, there's mounting evidence that there had already been a worldwide free energy system in existence from the original civilization, including electric streetcar systems, which included residential routes. And I have a picture of a, a lonely streetcar on a street in Charlotte, in a neighborhood, Charlotte, North Carolina. So at one time they were in existence everywhere and not just limited to a few places here and there. And most of them no longer exist. And then there were um, trolley parks that included Electric Park in Kansas City and Luna Park in Coney Island, both of which generated an incredible amount of electricity. And they're, they're long gone with other hundreds, hundreds of other such parks, you know, just like the World Fairs. I mean, these things are gone. So what I'm seeing is that the petroleum industry was developed in the 1850s in order to provide an energy technology to replace the electricity produced by the planetary grid system that powered the original civilization and to also make money from the control of non-renewable resources, also pollute the environment. Um, then there's General Electric, which was founded in Schenectady, New York in 1892 uh, with Thomas Edison um, and J.P. Morgan was involved with that because there was a merger of Edison General Electric Company and the Thompson-Houston Electric. Edison General had been founded as the Edison Electric Light Company in 1878 to market Edison's incandescent light bulb, which he was given the credit for inventing. And I'm not even sure he invented it. I just I say he's given the credit for it because I think that technology was already existing. And then the Thompson-Houston Electric was formed in 1882 in Lynn, Massachusetts. And what I find interesting about that is that they were supposed to have implemented the electric electrification of streetcars in Lynn, which was part of the Lynn and Boston Street Railway, which we're told was in service since 1854 when it had been powered by mules. And so what I'm seeing is that they had these streetcars and the rails in place, they used mules to pull them. And you'll see pictures of that. If you look up, you know, historical pictures of streetcars, you'll see dozens of them being pulled by mules until they could figure out how to re-electrify the original electric streetcar system. So you're saying that almost like, uh, I'm thinking of the Carrington event that happened in uh, 1859, if I'm not mistaken. The electricity would have, we didn't have electricity back then, allegedly. But you're saying that we had electricity, the mud flood happened, 
and then there was no electricity, but the rails were, the railroads were there and they were pulling with animals, mm-hmm. right? Until right. they were able, because according to Dr. Paul Avulet, if we had a we had a Carrington event again, it would take 10 years before we could re-electrify the grid because it would take that long to produce the transformers. So if, if we had electricity back then, theoretically, how long do you think was that parenthesis of no electricity? The example I just gave took place in 1888. So a period of, say, they say they used it since 1854 and they electrified it by 1888. And another, let me, let me go ahead and make a, a complete thought because I'm going to tie that into Ford and the automobile industry because there's a, an important point I want to make about that. So they've, they've got the oil, they've developed the gasoline which they can monetize instead of free energy. Henry Ford's first automobile company was the Henry Ford Company, which he started in 1901. Less than a year after that, he left the company with, after a dispute with investors with the rights to his name, and that company became known as the Cadillac Motor Company under new ownership. He subsequently went on to found the Ford Motor Company in 1903 and started producing cars right after that and developed the Model A. And then in 1904, moved to a new factory where the first Model Ts were built. And then in the next 10 years, would lead the world in expansion and refinement of the assembly line concept. There's there's two things I want to bring out about this. One is he brought part production in-house and thereby brought vertical integration, integration into his company which is where the supply chain of the company is owned by the company, all of its parts and everything. So how are they going to suck up the wealth into the hands of a few? There are so many of these companies that were vertically integrated, these early companies. Ford is just one example of owning everything. So, you know, there's making money hand over fist. This facilitated mass production of the new cars, um, Gasoline-powered private and public transportation provided another form of transportation for people, replacing the electric streetcar systems and, like I said, providing a highly lucrative means of generating wealth for the numerous companies involved in the transportation industry. And no non-polluting and low-fare streetcars were simply no longer wanted. And an example I have of this is in Montgomery, Alabama, one of the first streetcar systems said to have been built operated in Montgomery for only 50 years from 1886 to 1936 when the streetcars were retired in a big ceremony and replaced by buses. So the electric streetcar system was replaced by the, what we have today, buses and trucks and cars. And I tell people there was even a streetcar system in Manaus in the middle of the Amazon rainforest in Brazil at one time. There's pictures of it. You look it up. So... Did you say streetcar in the middle of the Amazon forest? Yes, in Manaus, Brazil. Manaus. In the heart of the Amazon. You know, I mean, this this was all over. And I've, I've really got it documented in different posts on my blog. Um, and, I, and every time I go to research, I just I just find more out. And this is the, so, the problem, that every time you open a door, 10 more doors open and you realize how much we don't know. But we have to take a one and only break. But before we do that... You mentioned a name, Thomas Edison, and everybody thinks he's the hero. He's the one that invented this and that and the electric bulb and blah, blah, blah. But hardly anybody talks about, to me, he's probably the one of the most important heroes of all time, Nikola Tesla, and hardly anybody talks about him. But two things to, to mention, General Electric, you mentioned that company. Since 2016, it has been owned by China. They bought it for $5.4 billion dollars. And they also own a big stake of Ford. So two companies that you mentioned, China. And now with this pandemic that we are hopefully leaving behind, who's the one that's accumulating most of the assets because of the way the pandemic treated the world? China. I want to ask you this now, and you'll give me the answer on the other side. Do you think that the power structure is consolidating everything into China because they are the beta test? of what they want the world to become or the fulfillment, the end game 
of what these people that you say that came from somewhere else, the usurpers as I call them, are these the same ones? But once again, how can people learn more about your work? And I hope that you can be putting all of this in a book in the future. <laughs> My website is www.peter, oh, I'm sorry, I can't even talk www.piercingtheveilofillusion.com which is only a blog I don't have anything else on there and then I convert all of my blog posts into videos and I have YouTube channel Michelle Gibson and if you type in Morse M-O-O-R-S it comes right up and I also have Patreon uh, Piercing the Veil of Illusion Well excellent, once we come back I want to also discuss something that a lot of people are sending this to me. I'm, I cannot authenticate or validate, but I cannot discount anything. The fact that, well, that Hitler actually escaped to Argentina and he lived there and he had four daughters with Eva Brown. And those daughters, most of you know who they are. But we'll see that and discuss it during part two in the member section. This is Mel Fabregas. My special guest today is Michelle Gibson. Don't go anywhere. Thank you for listening to the first part of this important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest and all of our material, proceed to the member section or join the Veritas family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. We are now accepting Bitcoin, Litecoin, and Ethereum. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for Focus Life Force Energy, MMS, CBD Pure Hemp Oil, Divinia Water, Pure Organic Sulfur, flash drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas seasons, and other great products. And if you're listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. And click the bell to be notified when new interviews are available. Now, proceed to the members section or subscribe to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it. Thank you for listening to Veritas, because you don't want to believe, you want to know.